Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Jim, I swear to you, this is the business opportunity of a lifetime. With our reach, we could corner the market in this whole damn city. We've already cornered the market, Johnny. The market on dames. We've got 200 brothels all throughout Chicago. We're raking in money hand over fist. And you want to get greedy? Reaching for more? Is what I've built not big enough for you? Dames are pennies compared to the money we could make from booze, and you know it. If you could just take your head out of your rear end long enough to breathe, we could be selling liquor on every block by the end of the month. Or we could be minding our own damn business. I'm the one running this outfit, Johnny. If I say we stay out of liquor, we stay out of liquor. Don't you forget it. You can't stop progress, Jim. Get out of here before I throw you out. You can't stop progress. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Unsolved Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Unsolved Murders in the search bar. This is our first episode on the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. This week, we'll cover the dramatic gang war that built to the most brutal massacre in the history of Chicago. Next week, we'll cover the investigation into said massacre and all the twists and turns that took place throughout. The St. Valentine's Day Massacre was the culmination of a long-running blood feud between the competing kingpins of 1920 Chicago. So, for our investigation into the massacre, we've invited the hosts of ParCast Original, Kingpins, to help us dig into the criminal underworld. We have Kate. Hi, Unsolved Murders listeners. And Howell. Hello, everyone. If you're interested in learning about the rise and fall of kingpins and queenpins, you can check out our show, Kingpins, every Friday, wherever you listen to podcasts. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. You can listen to previous episodes of Unsolved Murders, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify and wherever else you listen to podcasts. In the 1920s, the city of Chicago was controlled by two opposing crime organizations— the predominantly Irish Northside Gang, run by George Bugs Moran, and the Italian Chicago Outfit, an extension of the Mafia, run by Alphonse Scarface Capone. Capone was a brutal and efficient man whose public cordiality belied a vicious and violent mind. He was meticulous, ruthless, and willing to kill anyone who stood between him and his profits. George Bugs Moran was known for being impulsive and cruel. 
He was never considered an intelligent man, but his vicious attitude more than compensated for his lack of smarts. On February 14, 1929, members of both gangs would meet in bloody and spectacular fashion. The morning started peacefully, but by the end of the day, seven men would wind up murdered in a garage near Lincoln Park. This deadly attack would go down in history as the largest gangland bloodbath to ever occur within Chicago, and it remains one of the largest massacres to this day. The attack shocked the city of Chicago, and the graphic show of violence ultimately motivated the police to push for a crackdown against organized crime. Well, as such, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre became the crime that marked the end of an era. But to truly understand what occurred on that frigid day, we have to understand the climate of violence that made such a brutal attack possible. Hal and Kate will help us by explaining the world of crime that existed before Capone and Moran's rise to power. From 1900 to 1920, prostitution was the dominant criminal industry within Chicago, and gambling was a close second. In the early years of the city's life, most brothels and dog tracks were owned and operated by various small-time gangs. From the outset, these gangs would war on the streets, setting off bombs, firing guns, and assaulting employees of rival establishments. For the most part, the politicians and the public of Chicago tolerated the violence occurring on the streets of their city. The politicians were often in the pockets of the wealthiest mobsters, and the general public was just happy that the mobsters usually killed each other. This lax attitude towards crime led the city to become a haven for those organized criminals who hoped to make their fortunes through less reputable means. One of the most influential of these ne'er-do-wells was a man named Giacomo Big Jim Colosimo. Colosimo was an Italian-born man with family connections to the Mafia, along with his nephew-in-law and right-hand man, Giovanni Papa Gianni Torrio, Colosimo's outfit claimed most of the territory within the south side of Chicago. At the height of his power, he owned and operated over 200 brothels throughout the region. While Colosimo's Italian mafia was seizing control of the south side, Chicago's northern neighborhoods were a haven of recently immigrated Irishmen. The Irish community loathed prostitution finding it highly immoral, so Irish criminals often spent most of their efforts pursuing other rackets, like gambling, robbery, and general thuggery. One of the most prominent Irish gangs at the time was the Market Street Gang, led by Dean O'Banion. With the help of his friends Vincent Schemer Drucci, Earl Jaime Weiss, and George Bugs Moran, O'Banion and his Market Street gang became professional safecrackers, con artists, and hired thugs for newspapers and politicians alike. For the most part, the Market Street gang and the Chicago outfit remained within their own territories throughout the 1910s, not interfering in each other's businesses in any way. However, fate would soon put them on a collision course of bloodshed and conflict. The criminal underworld of Chicago changed dramatically in 1917, 
when the United States Congress passed a landmark bill, the 18th Amendment to the Constitution, which banned, quote, the manufacture, sale, or transportation of intoxicating liquors nationwide. The bill went into effect in January of 1920, marking the start of Prohibition. While Prohibition put many honest breweries out of business, it presented a brand new and incredibly lucrative opportunity for those entrepreneurs who were willing to break the law to make a little profit. O'Banion quickly made inroads with liquor producers in Canada, while buying up breweries and equipment from legitimate businessmen in the United States. With the many political and business connections he had already formed, he set up speakeasies and secret liquor stores all across the north side of Chicago. As the predominant gang in the north side, the Market Street gang rapidly expanded its grip and power. The profits O'Banion's bootlegging brought in were staggering. As O'Banion solidified his grip on the north side, Johnny Torrio, second in command of Colosimo's Southside Chicago outfit, saw the money other bootleggers were bringing in and decided he wanted a piece of the pie. Torrio brought the idea up to Colosimo, but it didn't go as well as he had hoped. I'm the one running this outfit, Johnny. If I say we stay out of liquor, we stay out of liquor. Don't you forget it. You can't stop progress, Jim. I love you, Big Jim, but it seems you forced my hand. I'm sorry you're such a fool. Colosimo refused to enter the liquor business, believing his outfit was already stretched too thin running his brothels. However, Torrio is not the kind of man who took no for an answer. While Colosimo remained obstinate in his refusal to sell booze, Torrio met with his protege, 20-year-old Alphonse Capone and Frankie Yale, the national president of the Unione Siciliana, the largest Italian crime organization in the United States. Gentlemen, I love Big Jim more than anybody in this room, but he is standing in the way of true greatness. Frankie, you're more a businessman than any I've ever met. I'm sure you understand where I'm coming from. Believe me, Torrio, I sympathize with your situation. Bootlegging's been making us mint back in New York. So we can expect your support, should something happen to our friend Big Jim. Support? Hell, I'll take care of the situation myself if, you know, the price is right. I'm happy to hear it. After having gained the approval of the Mafia at large, Torrio decided to move against his boss, Big Jim Colosimo. On May 11, 1920, Torrio told Colosimo to wait at one of his many restaurants for a delivery of stolen goods. Little did Colosimo know he would be waiting for the arrival of something else entirely. It's been over an hour. How long are you going to make me wait, Torrio? Thank God, I've been waiting. Frankie? What are you doing here? I've got a message for you, Jim. A message? What kind of message could you possibly have for me? It's from Johnny, about the liquor. He says he's sorry, but... <laughs> sorry? Don't feed me that BS, Frankie. If you're gonna shoot me, then get it over with. Works for me. 
Big Jim Colosimo was murdered in his own restaurant by his former colleagues. It's unknown who actually pulled the trigger, but most evidence points to Frankie Yale as the man who finally put Big Jim out of commission. With Colosimo out of the way, Torrio seized control of the Chicago outfit, with Al Capone established as his right-hand man. In order to honor his former boss, Torrio arranged for Colosimo to have the most extravagant funeral the city of Chicago had ever seen. Flowers were piled high on Colosimo's casket, and his body was paraded through the city. He had 53 different pallbearers, some of whom were congressmen and judges, and over 1,000 people showed up to mourn his death. Colosimo's death set a drastic precedent for the mob. Now, every mob boss and two-bit gangster in Chicago wanted as grand a funeral as Colosimo, and it wouldn't be long before many of them joined Colosimo in the grave. Colosimo's assassination had kicked off the beginning of a violent and horrific conflict that would culminate in massacre sooner than anyone had realized. As Torrio took control of the Chicago outfit, he rapidly expanded his grasp on bootlegging throughout the city. However, this expansion of influence soon put him in conflict with the other dominant bootlegging forces, Dean O'Banion and his predominantly Irish Northside gang. By the end of 1920, O'Banion had quickly and effectively eliminated all of his rivals in the north side of Chicago and used the profits from his bootlegging ventures to purchase himself a flower shop called Schofield's. He enjoyed arranging flowers almost as much as he enjoyed murdering his rivals. And as he began to use his flower shop as a base of operations, he set his sights on territory controlled by Torrio. The competing factions began setting off bombs in each other's establishments and executing drive-by shootings to scare patrons away. However, as both the Northside Gang and the Southside Mafia began to see a dip in their profits from the public's fear of violence, Torrio, always the business-minded criminal, wanted to put an end to the warfare. At some point in early 1921, Torrio and his right-hand man, Capone, met with O'Banion and his right-hand man, Jaime Weiss. O'Banion! Pleasure to be meeting with you like this. I'm glad you're willing to speak to a competitor like me. Not many people are. Well, all these bullets are bad for the both of us. I'd love to come to some kind of arrangement, but I need to make it clear. The North Side belongs to me, and I won't budge on that. You won't budge in the North, we won't budge in the South. We all agree on that. But ain't that what's gotten us into this mess? Perhaps there's another option? If we each maintain control of our own territories, but become partners in other ventures, we can both benefit from each other's successes. Make it a win-win for all of us. And make moving against each other a lose-lose for the both of us. If we're split in profits, a war will cost each side equally. Disincentivizing ungentlemanly behavior. Not a bad idea. Glad we agree. Now let's talk specifics, shall we? Torrio and O'Banion came to an agreement 
splitting the profits from three lucrative casinos, restaurants, and clubs within each of their territories. But the peace would not last forever. Before long, bodies would line the streets once again. We'll see the bloodshed continue after this. On Unsolved Murders, we explore the facts of real-life true crime cold cases. But if you're looking for more true crime cases with a bit of a twist, you should check out the ParCast original Female Criminals. When you think of a criminal, what do you picture? You picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. I bet you didn't think it could be the mother around the corner or the little old lady next door. Female Criminals investigates the lives of the world's most notorious female felons and explores the stories behind their dangerous crimes. These criminals come in every form, from serial killers and assassins to bank robbers and drug lords. Female Criminals is like a mystery and crime documentary rolled into one. New episodes premiere every Wednesday. Follow Female Criminals free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And now back to the story. In 1921, Chicago was ruled by two rival gangs, the Italian South Side Gang, run by Johnny Torrio, and the Irish North Side Gang, run by Dino Banyan. The two gangs had come to a peace agreement and had operated as business partners for three years. However, the situation soon began to change when an independent Italian syndicate called the West Side Gang began to expand their own bootlegging operations. The West Side Gang was run by a collection of six brothers known as the Terrible Jennas, and they were true to their name. While the gang was Sicilian, they had formed outside of Torrio's territory and operated independently from the Chicago outfit. Even though they were separate entities with separate goals, the West Side Gang and the South Side Gang were largely allied due to their shared ethnic identities and their mutual connections within the Unione Siciliana. As such, the West Side Gang and the South Side Gang had no intention of competing against each other. While the South Side Gang had come to an agreement with O'Banion and his North Side Gang, the Jennas and their West Side Gang had not. When the Jennas wanted to expand their territory, they began pushing into O'Banion's lands in the north, bringing back the bombings and drive-by shootings that had plagued the north side streets only three years earlier. Naturally, O'Banion was upset. But tensions only got worse when Torrio came to O'Banion with a request. O'Banion! I see our casinos doing swimmingly, as usual. As good as can be expected, with those friends of yours constantly causing problems. About that, I think I know something that might be able to smooth over some of that ill will between you and the Jennas. What cockamamie plan are you trying to cook up now? Well, if you'll remember, one of the Jenna brothers owes this very casino a large sum of money. Maybe if you agree to forgive their debt, they'll back off a little. Forgive their debt? I've always suspected it was Torio, but you proved it right here. You Italians are all the same, working hard to take my money out from under me. I'll forgive his debt over my dead body. You think it's time to make that happen, boss? I think it's time. With O'Banion refusing to back down, 
Torrio and Capone used his refusal as the excuse they were looking for to eliminate O'Banion and try to claim his territory. Once again, Torrio and Capone looked to their friend, Frankie Yale, for help. Frankie placed an order at O'Banion's flower shop, and on November 10, 1924, he arrived to pick up the order with John Scalisi and Albert Anselmi, two of the Jenna's top gunmen. Frankie Yale, I've got your bouquet right here. You got the catch? Of course, of course, but before we make the deal, I gotta shake hands with you, sir. Of course. Congrats on your recent successes. Thank you very. You can let go of my hand now. No, I don't think I can. You, Jenna bastard! At Torrio's command, Frankie Yale, John Scalisi, and Albert Anselmi gunned down Dino Banyan in his flower shop. Following Colosimo's lead, Dino Banyan's funeral was extravagant. His coffin cost his family $10,000, and it was piled high with thousands more dollars worth of flowers. It seemed at the time that the entire city of Chicago had massed on the streets to mourn his passing. Politicians, policemen, gangsters, and even Southside mobsters Torrio and Capone attended the funeral. However, they had not arrived to pay their respects. Instead, Capone and Torrio locked eyes with Jaime Weiss, O'Banion's second in command. Capone and Torrio meant their stare as a threat. What happened to Dean could easily happen to Weiss, and they wanted him to know it. But Weiss was not cowed by their stares. Instead, he glared back and spat on the ground. The Italians weren't the only people who could shoot a man. He wanted Torrio and Capone to know he would be coming for them soon. This gruesome assassination had pushed the North and South Side gangs toward all-out war. After O'Banion's death, command of the North Side forces fell to Jaime Weiss, with Vincent Schemer Drucci as his second-in-command and George Bugs Moran as their primary muscle. Despite the South Side threats, Weiss swore vengeance against Torrio and Capone, he quickly planned his own assassinations, and it didn't take long for him to act. On January 12, 1925, Weiss, Drucci, and Moran came across Capone's limousine parked on the side of the street. They rolled down the windows of their own vehicle and opened fire. They tore the car apart with lead, wounding Capone's driver. However, Capone himself had been inside the building making a purchase at the time of the attack. After Weiss sped away, Capone came out of the building to see the devastation they had wrought on his automobile. For the first time in his gangland career, Capone realized how easily he could be taken out. He assuaged his fear by placing an order for a new bulletproof Cadillac. The Cadillac would be so heavy that it could hardly drive but its solid steel doors and inch-thick windows made him nearly invulnerable while he was on the streets. Capone's new ride was a message to gangland to not even try attacking him again. But while Capone was shoring up his own defenses, 
Torrio remained vulnerable to Weiss and the Northside gang. On January 24, 1925, only 12 days after the attack on Capone's car, Weiss, Drucci, and Moran drove up alongside Torrio and his wife as they were exiting their car outside of their apartment building. Weiss and Moran opened fire on Torrio, ultimately hitting him in his jaw, abdomen, groin, legs, and lungs. As Torrio dropped to the ground bleeding, Weiss ran up and put the barrel of his gun against Torrio's head. He pulled the trigger, but the gun was out of ammunition. Without missing a beat, Weiss began kicking Torrio in the gut, and Moran began beating him with a billy club to help out. After a short time beating Torrio, Drucci signaled to the others that it was time to go. The Northsiders left Torrio bleeding out upon the ground, but Torrio's wife had already managed to call an ambulance. Torrio was rushed to the hospital, and after several hours of intensive surgery, he miraculously survived. As he healed in the hospital, Capone stationed armed men outside his door at all hours of the day. When Torrio was finally feeling well enough to talk, he had something surprising to tell Capone. Oh, I'm real happy you're still breathing, boss. Weiss will pay for this. I swear it. I've got people telling him as we speak. Good. Good. I'm glad you've got it under control. You'll do well when I'm gone. Sure. But you're not going anywhere anytime soon. Thank God. <laughs> See, that's what I want to talk to you about. We've only got one life. And after I almost lost mine, I've decided I'd rather keep it. I'm done with the outfit, Al. It'd make me real happy if you would run it in my stead. You're done? You're walking away just like that? It's all yours, Al. Me? I'm quitting. It's Europe for me. Even though he had survived the attack, Torrio was effectively eliminated from the bootlegging business. He had become so frightened of assassination that he passed the torch on to Capone and moved to Italy with all his wealth in tow. This was a wise move on Torrio's part, as the gangland violence was not about to slow down anytime soon. Now, 27-year-old Weiss and 26-year-old Capone each had scores to settle against one another. The North and South Side gangs both continued their war, with each side losing people valuable to their cause. Bars owned by patrons of the North Side gang found themselves subject to bombings and drive-by shootings, while the Jenna brothers of the West Side gang found themselves hunted and murdered by Weiss and his killers. Weiss even took another shot at Capone on September 20th, 1926. Capone sat eating at the restaurant in the Hawthorne Hotel. As he was discussing business with his bodyguard, Frank Rio, he heard gunshots from the street. Capone stood and began walking to the window to see what was going on. He noticed a line of eight cars driving down the street towards the hotel. Just then, Frank Rio tackled Capone to the ground. 
Dozens of bullets shattered the windows and flew through the restaurant, peppering the walls with lead and dust. They listened in terror as each car drove past, Thompson machine guns blazing. They heard one of the cars stop. A man got out and kicked in the front door of the restaurant, opening fire on the interior. Capone lay on the ground while bits and pieces of the wall rained down on him from above, praying that the shooter hadn't seen him. After what seemed like an eternity, the shooter ran out of ammo. Capone held his breath and lay as still as he could, waiting. Then he heard the man leave, and the last of the eight cars speed away. (sighs) Capone lay on the ground and stared at the destruction around him. Once again, he had come within inches of losing his life. He knew he had to end this warfare before it ended him. He reached out to Weiss and requested that they get together to discuss terms for a peace agreement. Weiss was interested, and he agreed to meet. On October 4, 1926, Capone and Weiss finally met in person. I'm glad you were able to make it out, Mr. Weiss. I was afraid one of us would have to die to put an end to all this senseless bloodshed. I sympathize with you. It would certainly be nice if we could come to an agreement. Would you like to split profits? Go into business together? I'm open to suggestions. Just tell me what you want to make this all go away. I have plenty of money, Capone. I haven't been firing on your men for business nor for pleasure. I'm aiming for justice. And if you're willing to give that to me... I think we can finally be able to move on. Justice? For O'Banion? I'm not going to let you kill me. That would defeat the point of this whole thing. I don't want your head. I want the Triggerman. You'll give me Scalisi and Anselmi, and I'll consider my grudge fulfilled. No. No! Absolutely not. I wanted to meet you to end the violence, and your offer is to kill two of my best men instead? I thought you were a businessman. But if that's all you came to ask for, I don't think we've got anything more to discuss. Fair enough. I suppose the next time I see you will be when we're both in hell. You'll have to save me a seat. I have a feeling you'll be getting there first. The peace talks had fallen through. Now Capone was convinced that in order to end the war... He needed to move as quickly as possible to end Jaime Weiss himself. Capone set up lookouts outside of O'Banion's former flower shop, which had continued to function as the operating base for the Northside gang, even after O'Banion's death. Capone's men tracked Weiss's movement and found boarding rooms with clear firing lines to the street. Then on October 11th, only one week after the failed peace talks, Capone's men saw Weiss walking down the street with four of his men. They slid their boarding room windows open and began to fire. The street was peppered with bullets, and by the end of the machine gun fire, Jaime Weiss lay upon the concrete, dead. With Weiss dead, Vincent Schemer Drucci and George Bugs Moran took joint control of the North Side Gang. They both wanted revenge for the deaths of their friends, 
but Capone was fed up with emotions interfering with his business. Working through a network of middlemen and messengers, Capone contacted Drucci and Moran and asked them to attend a peace meeting at the Hotel Sherman. Drucci was interested, but Moran had other ideas. Jaime didn't want peace with that man, and neither do I. We don't stop until we stop Capone's heart. You hear me, Drucci? Look, I want him dead as much as you, but blood is bad for business. Besides, the cops want to end the violence too. And if they get involved, we won't have any business to speak of at all. I hear you, I really do, but this isn't just about business. This is about justice. Dean and Jaime demand it. They're dead, Bugsy. And I'm not saying we need to make peace with Capone for all time. I'm just saying we need to make peace for now. Lie low. Take a breather. It would be nice not to worry about Hitman while walking down the street for a while. I agree. We're going to the meeting then? Yeah. Yeah, let's go. In late October, shortly after successfully assassinating Jaime Weiss, Al Capone managed to convince the Northside gang leaders to meet with him and discuss terms for peace. As the gangsters met, talk focused on their shared threat of federal government crackdown. While the gangsters owned the politicians and police of Chicago, their bloody feud had drawn the attention of the nation at large, and some federal politicians had been speaking in the papers about putting Chicago under martial law. While these threats of martial law were not likely to be carried out, Capone, Moran, and Drucci had all taken notice of them. After several days of negotiations, the two gangs agreed to call a truce. Capone's men would stay in Capone's territory, and the Northsiders would stay in theirs. They would live in different worlds, not interfere with each other, and live happily ever after. This agreement came to be known as the Hotel Sherman Treaty, and it would go down in Chicago history as the most effective ceasefire agreement to ever exist during the Chicago Beer Wars. In total, Chicago gangs went 70 days without attacking each other. An impressive feat. However, no gangland peace was ever going to last. We'll learn about the raucous end of the ceasefire after this. And now, back to the story. In October of 1926... Al Capone successfully negotiated a peace with his Northside rivals, Vincent Schemer Drucci and George Bugs Moran. However, these gangland good times soon came to an end when the election for the Chicago mayor came around. Elections in Chicago had always been plagued with gang violence, as competing gangs had competing candidates who would cater to their interests. This political violence took many forms, including voter intimidation, abductions of campaign officials, ballot box robberies, and even murder if the election was contentious enough. The Chicago mayoral election of 1927 was no different. During campaign season, Capone had promoted his candidate for mayor and had been making several illegal pushes to convince city aldermen to help him keep his mayor in charge. 
However, the Northside gang had their own mayoral candidate, and they saw Capone's meddling as a step too far during peacetime. In order to combat Capone in the polls, Drucci took two of his men to the office of an opposing alderman and attempted to ransack the place on the day before the election. While Drucci was tearing through the office, Detective Dan Healy caught him and arrested him. As Detective Healy led Drucci to the car, Drucci berated him. Who do you think you are, you frickin' wise guy? I own this place. I own you. You think you could just drag me along by the arm like some dame? Get in the car and shut your mouth. Shut my mouth? Shut my mouth? You don't tell me to shut my mouth. I said shut it. Or what, wise guy? Or this. Detective Healy shot Vincent's schemer Drucci as Drucci sat in the back seat of his police car. Drucci fell to the floor of the car and quickly bled to death as bullets had penetrated his arm, leg, and abdomen. Detective Healy had shot Drucci on impulse, not at the order of Capone or any other gangster. However, when Bugs Moran heard about the death of his friend, he was incensed. Drucci had been the one who talked him into peace with Capone. And now with Drucci dead, there was nobody left to temper Moran's rage. Under Moran's leadership, the Northside gang returned to waging all-out war against Capone and his Southsiders. Moran proved himself to be quite violent but not the most intelligent mobster. He would make many assassination attempts against Capone and his lieutenants, but he would fail much of the time. By that same measure, Capone would struggle to kill Moran as efficiently as he had eliminated Moran's predecessors. The conflict between the two stretched throughout all of 1927 and well into 1928. To make matters worse, Capone had had a falling out with his old friend, Frankie Yale, president of the Unione Siciliana. The Chicago chapter of the Unione Siciliana had recently had its leader murdered, and Frankie was pushing for a different replacement than Capone, essentially forcing them both to vie for power within Capone's own district. Determined to put his man in office, Frankie had begun supporting an up-and-coming Italian gang in the west side of Chicago, led by the Aiello brothers. In their own efforts to take control, the Aiellos had even gone so far as to partner with Moran and his gang in their actions against Capone. Capone tried to mend things over with Yale by inviting him to a prize-fighting boxing match in Chicago. Yale agreed to attend. Oh, would you look at that punch? It's really something. I'm glad we get to watch this together, Al. Me too, Frankie. I'd like this to be a regular thing. But you understand that we might have issues if you keep working against me. Don't think of it as working against you. Think of it as working for me. It's just business, old friend. No, Frankie. You see, business would mean you get me my liquor shipments on time and stop messing with my business. That's business. Agree to disagree. Now let's finish watching the fight, shall we? Sure, sure. I'll finish the fight. What was that? Nothing, Frankie. Nothing. 
Frankie returned to New York shortly after, with both men aware that their formerly chummy relationship had turned into a deadly feud. Capone wanted to get rid of Frankie Yale, but he knew that Frankie would recognize any of his typical assassins and see them coming from a mile away. In order to pull off the hit, Capone turned to some of his more recent hires, a pack of thugs he had met in Detroit he called the American Boys. These men were contract killers and armed robbers who had once been a part of the Egan's Rats gang in St. Louis, Missouri. They included men like Fred Killer Burke, Gus Winkler, Bob Carey, Raymond Crane Neck Nugent, and Fred Getz. Each of them were violent and ambitious in their own ways. And when Capone offered them cold, hard cash to go to New York and eliminate Frankie Yale, they couldn't refuse. On July 1st, 1928, Frankie Yale was going about his daily routine in one of his clubs when he got a strange phone call. This is Frankie. Frankie, your wife. Something's wrong with her. She needs you now. What? Who is this? What do you mean? Something's wrong with your wife. Get to her before someone else does. I don't appreciate being jerked around, so you tell me. After receiving a strange call about his wife, Frankie Yale went to his car to drive home as quickly as possible. He didn't know that Capone's American boys were waiting for him. The American boys chased him in their own vehicle, firing out the window in an attempt to gun him down. He drove as quickly as he could, but his car simply wasn't fast enough to outrun his pursuers. The American boys pulled up beside him and unloaded their weapons into Frankie's vehicle. Several shots went through his brain, and the car lost control, hopping the curb and crashing into a nearby building. The American boys sped away and abandoned their car. They had used a Thompson submachine gun, and while this gun had been a popular choice of weapon for Chicago gangsters for years, this was the first time that weapon had been used in New York City. The Thompson submachine gun was known to be brutal and effective. It was a symbol of violence and overkill throughout the nation, and New York was shocked to see such a weapon used within its own city limits. Many detectives within New York immediately suspected Yale was killed by someone from Chicago based on the choice of weapon alone. However, they would have no evidence to prove this until months later, leaving Capone free to continue his operation. With Frankie Yale eliminated, Capone's primary remaining competition was Bugs Moran and his Northside gang. By the fall of 1928, Capone had become fed up with Moran, and in either October or November of that year, he gathered some of his top men together at one of his men's lodges near Couderay in northwest Wisconsin. The men present at the meeting included several of Capone's American boys, as well as Louis Campagna, one of Capone's top gunmen, and two corrupt city politicians, Daniel Saratella and William Pacelli. The men spent two weeks discussing plans to get rid of Moran. When they were satisfied with their scheme, they went their separate ways, each man with his own marching orders going forward. 
While many within Capone's organization had heard that the meeting had taken place, none knew the specifics of the plan. Least of all, Northside gang head Bugs Moran. Time began to pass, and as November and then December came and went, with no attempts being made on Moran's life, most people within the outfit forgot that the meeting had taken place at all. Time then passed into January of 1929, and the city of Chicago rang in the new year. Nobody expected what horrors the city would witness in February. On February 14, 1929, Bugs Moran was heading to a meeting he had arranged with some of his top men. They were supposed to arrive by 10.30 that morning at the SMC Cartage Company garage, an illicit secondary base of operations for the Northside gang. Well, there is some common misinformation about why Moran had called the meeting. Sources often say the meeting was called to receive and unload a load of liquor recently hijacked from Capone's shipments. However, the evidence does not bear this theory out, as Moran likely would not have brought together his highest-ranking men simply to unload barrels of whiskey. Instead, Moran had called the meeting to cook up the plan for his next assassination attempt against Capone. This information only became publicly available years after the incident occurred, hence why the false theory is the most common explanation for the meeting. As he approached his planning session, Bugs Moran was walking through the chilly winter air down North Clark Street, only a few blocks away from Lake Michigan. As he approached the SMC Cartage garage, he noticed something odd. A car that looked very similar to a police vehicle was approaching the garage from down the street. It didn't have any police markings, but he could see two men sitting in the front seat. Moran had seen vehicles like these before. Undercover cops had used them to raid some of his stash houses, and Moran felt his hair stand on end as he saw them sitting outside of his important meeting. He popped up his collar and pulled his hat down to better obscure his face, and he turned around. He ducked into a coffee shop along with one of his fellow gang members named Ted Newberry. He couldn't be sure that the police were coming to raid his meeting, but he wasn't going to take any chances. As he stepped out of the cold Chicago air, he just hoped his men wouldn't be locked up in prison for too long. They had business to attend to. While Moran had noticed the vehicle, he was lucky that certain men hadn't noticed him. At the boarding house across the street from the SMC Cartage Garage, Capone had two men watching from a room on the second floor. Jimmy the Swede Morand and Jimmy McCresson were two low-level Capone thugs who knew Bugs Moran by sight. They were staking out the garage along with a young man named Byron Bolton to watch for Moran's arrival. But as he walked by, they failed to spot him. In fact, when one of Bugs Moran's other men had arrived ten minutes earlier... The lookouts had mistaken that man for Bugs himself. We don't know exactly who they confused for Bugs, but as Albert Weinshank was a similar height and build to Moran, it's likely they had mistaken the two given the distance. As they saw Albert enter the garage, they made a call to their men, waiting in the nearby home of a fellow Southside hoodlum. Yellow. 
The rabbit is in the hole. Repeat. The rabbit is in the hole. Send in the hounds. Capiche? Capiche. Capone's men were on their way. As Capone's men drove to the garage, Moran's men were waiting inside. They were some of Moran's highest-ranking gang members, such as Albert Kashalek, Moran's right-hand man, Adam Heyer, Moran's bookkeeper, Albert Weinchank, one of Moran's business managers, and Frank and Pete Gusenberg, his two best gunmen. Two other people were also present at the meeting. One was Reinhard Schwimmer, an optician who had quit doctoring in order to hang out and gamble with gang members. He had not been involved in any illegal gang activity. He simply enjoyed keeping the company of thugs. The other person was John May, a young man who would repair vehicles for the Northside gang from time to time. He happened to be working at the garage at the time and had not intended to be present for a high-tier meeting, as far as we're aware. He had even brought along his dog and tied it to a truck to keep him company while he worked. As the seven men meandered about inside, waiting for their boss, May's dog began to bark. Uh, What's that pup yapping about? Uh, Somebody must be coming in the back. Good ears on that pooch. I'll let him in. Everybody wait here. Took you long enough. Police! Hands up! Jesus, cool it with those pistols, you two! Cool it! We're not playing around, scumbag! Okay, hands up! Everybody against the wall! All seven men shuffled to the wall and placed their hands flat against it. They thought they were simply being arrested and frisked, an average shakedown whenever cops felt like taking a little more from the bootleggers' tills. Yet, instead of immediately frisking the men, one of the cops went to the front door and unlocked it. And depending on who you ask, either two or four men stepped in wearing trench coats. What, you got backup? I said eyes to the wall, dirtbag. All right, sheesh. Now, we got a couple instructions for you. When you get to hell, tell them Capone sent you. Wait, what? The men the cops had led into the building opened fire, spraying bullets from their Thompson submachine guns. All seven men were cut down, their bodies nearly sliced in half by the ceaseless barrage of bullets. After almost a minute of trigger pulling, the cops and the strangers left the building, half going out the front door and the other half going out the back. Witnesses at the time saw two men dressed as police officers escorting two men who looked like gangsters holding their hands up. The witnesses watched as they quickly drove away, simply assuming the gunfire had been the prelude to a successful police raid and the successful arrest of two mobsters. Yet as time went by, May's dog kept barking and people grew curious. Claire McAllister, one of the neighbors, finally decided to peek into the garage to see what had happened. He carefully opened the door and looked inside, only to see Frank Gusenberg dragging himself to the front door, drenched in his own blood. <gasps> Who is it? I, I just come to help you out. <laughs> Police! Doctor! As the witness called the police, 
doctors and officers rushed to the scene. They would enter the building to see the most devastating carnage that had ever occurred within the city of Chicago. Six corpses were lying against the ground in a pool of their own blood, hundreds of bullets embedded into the wall behind them. Doctors would rush to treat Frank Gusenberg, who had been hit by 14 bullets, but he would die only three hours after the shooting. He remained tight-lipped about who had killed him, saying only that they had been cops, sticking to the Omerta Code. His death brought the total body count of the attack up to seven. The papers had been used to printing stories about bold and deadly mob murders, but this attack was far beyond the pale. It was a mass killing almost unbelievable to the press, and they decided massacre was the only word appropriate to describe what had occurred. Because the attack had occurred on February 14th, they branded it the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, and news quickly spread all across the country. The public was disgusted by the level of brutality and desperately wanted to know who had pulled the trigger. Despite Gusenberg's silence, police investigators were determined to catch the killers. They would even go so far as to invent a new forensic science to find out. Join us next week as we follow the investigation into the contract killing and the investigatory trail that led police right back to Capone himself. Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with part two of the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Unsolved Murders, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Unsolved Murders on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Unsolved Murders in the search bar. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll all be back next week to finish up this investigation. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Yeah, if we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Michael Langsner. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Giles Hovseth and stars Howell Hargett, Kate Leonard, Wendy McKenzie, and Carter Roy. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Mike Capozzi, Sky King, Steve Pinto, and Brett Schneider. <laughs>